Good morning, HBC, and those who are here as well. It's always a shock when I'm talking to the camera and then I hear good morning back. (laughs) Please open your Bible to the book of Haggai, uh, Haggai chapter 1. If you're not sure where Haggai is, it's the third to last book in the Old Testament, so it goes Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, then Malachi, so maybe turn to Matthew and work your way back and you'll find Haggai soon enough. We started a series last week in the book of Haggai and we did an introduction and looked at the the first two verses. Uh, Today we're going to be looking at verses 3 to 11, uh, but let's read from verse 1 together. Let's read Haggai 1 from verse 1 to 11. In the second year of Darius the king, In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? while this house lies in ruins. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your full. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Let us pray. Dear God, we come before you again, and we want to do the sometimes difficult work of opening up our hearts to what your word reveals. And yet we ask again this morning that you would do that work through the power of your spirit, that application would be made to each of our lives, and that we would be changed. Your word is powerful. We lean on it this morning. Amen. Have you heard of Ronald Wayne? Ronald Wayne. He is the, one of the, the co-founders of the Apple company. Apple wasn't just founded by Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. Ronald Wayne was a third co-founder. Now, Jobs and Wozniak were in their 20s when they started the company. They were young and enthusiastic. And while they were thinking about it, they, they had a dispute. And Steve Jobs worked with uh, Wayne, Ronald Wayne. And so he, they brought the dispute before him, knowing he had experience. He was in his 40s at the time. And so he was able to, um, to smooth over the dispute. He gave them wise advice, and they were so impressed, they asked him that day to help them start a company. 
He was sort of the, the adult supervision of a, a fledgling young new company. So they started a company that day. Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak had 45% shares in Apple, and Ronald Wayne was given 10% shares, sort of like a, a swing vote. He wrote up a contract, and 12 days later, he bought himself, or he was bought out of that contract and wrote himself out of it. He was only part of the company for 12 days. What had happened was uh, Steve Jobs immediately took out a $15,000 loan in order to buy parts to fulfill a $50,000 order with a, a company that had a, a bit of a bad reputation for paying their bills. And so Ronald Wayne realized because Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak were young, they had nothing to their name, their bank accounts were empty. He realized he had a house and he had a, a savings account and, and he was taking on the greatest risk with a, a minority holding. And so he got a little bit scared and backed out. They paid him $800 for his shares. Today, 10% of Apple would amount to $200 billion. Now, Wayne claimed many, many years later that he, he said, I never regretted that decision. If I'd stayed, I'd be the richest man in the cemetery right now. Although one newspaper reported him saying to them, unfortunately, my whole life, I've been a day late and a dollar short. On another occasion, Wayne did say, if I have one regret, it's what I did with the original contract. So he had the contract from, I think it was 1976, sitting in his garage until 1995. He pulled it out and dusted it off and said, I'm not doing anything with this. And he sold it. He sold that contract for $500. In 2011, the same contract sold for a little more than $1.5 million. How can you possibly know the, the value of some things? How could he possibly have known, looking forward, what would happen with the Apple company? The problem with our sin nature is that when we look around and we look at the world, very rarely do we see the true value of things. Very rarely do we feel the weight of things that have eternal value. Spiritually speaking, we're like Ronald Wayne, we fail to see things as they are, and eternal things are dimmed by the bright lights of the world. We put concern and care into things that won't last. We trade greater things for the temporary. In this way, we are so like the people of Haggai's day. They had the same problem in terms of making bad investments and having poor priorities. So to get you caught up, Due to failure, the failure of the people of God to value God, false worship, idolatry, and spiritual complacency had led to an exile. God's refining hand in their lives, they spent decades in the land of Babylon, in the temple, all that time lay destroyed in ruins. And yet God did a, a miracle through the Medo-Persian king Cyrus in bringing the people back to the land. Uh, Cyrus made an edict that uh, even said that they were to go and to rebuild the temple and that he would fit the bill for that. Pagan kings don't act in this way. It is as Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. God did a miracle in bringing the people back to the land of Jerusalem. And so they return to the land and they begin rebuilding. 
with enthusiasm. Finally, God will once again be worshipped as he's commanded to be worshipped. And yet very quickly, due to opposition from the people in the land, their hands drop and they become discouraged. And so two years in, they stop the work of rebuilding the temple. And then for 16 years after that, the temple lies derelict. Last week, we looked at the first oracle in the book of Haggai. One statement meant to cut across their justifications and meant to wake them up. In verse 2, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. They were saying, God can wait. There's just nothing that we can do right now. Today, we're going to look at the second oracle in Haggai's short message from verse 3. Let's read together again, verse 3 and verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time, is this the time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, my house, lies in ruins? You must have at least some money and time and energy to spend your building just not my house, God says. Now this verse, uh, this word paneled, referring to paneled houses, is quite a, a rare word and it can actually mean a few different things. It can refer to a, a ceiling or a roof, or it can mean what it, it says here in the ESV, referred to paneling, like wooden paneling, a, a, a sort of ornate decoration. So the message here Haggai is bringing could be one of two things. Either he's saying, you have time and money to spend on completing, finishing your houses, but my house lies in ruins. Or he could be saying, you say that you can't build my house, but you have time and money to decorate your own. Either way, Haggai is challenging them in their priorities. What is it he's saying ought to come First, we all have time. <laughs> we all have resources. We are all building something. We're all pursuing something. And the question that Haggai brings to us today is this. Are you building your own kingdom at the expense of God's? Let me, let me put it to you this way. Have you ever been kept awake at night by something? been worrying about something and unable to sleep? Has something ever consumed your thoughts while you're awake? Well, when you see Jesus face to face one day, how much of the things that consumed your thoughts will still matter then? How much of those things have bearing and weight and relate to the house of the Lord? to the fact that his house is unfinished, the work is unfinished? Have you ever been kept awake about a friend who was lost, or a brother or sister in Christ who was spiritually vulnerable, a church ministry on your heart that wasn't flourishing, the fact that there are places still today where Christ's name has not been preached? What about the sin in your life? How much of the, the things that fill your daily thoughts are related to God's will, to his kingdom, and to his rule over your life? We spent some time last year looking at the, the Lord's Prayer, the, the, the prayer that Jesus modeled for us. And how does it begin? 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When was the last time that you prayed and that was the desire of your heart? That was the deep yearning in your soul. God, your kingdom come. The people of of God had lost sight of their purpose and of God's power. They had looked around at the opposition surrounding them and said, in the providence of God, there is nothing that we can do right now for the house of the Lord. They'd lost sight of what God was doing. God had favored them with a miracle in their return, and they'd forgotten who had gotten them to this place. They'd forgotten his glory, his power, and his worth. Are we maybe a little bit guilty of the same? Do you look around at the world right now and look at your own life perhaps and what you have going on and say, there's just nothing I can do right now for the kingdom of God. Are we going to lose sight of our calling in the midst of panic and struggle? Is this the time, church, for backing down? Is this the time for battening down hatches, for cutting our losses, for hedging our bets, or any other idiom you can think of for choosing safety over sacrifice and risk for the kingdom of heaven? Their opposition and their obstacles were greater, I promise you, than our own. They had more reason to say, we've got a lot on our plates right now, God. We just need to focus on our own problems and our own lives for a minute. And God said to them, your priorities are mixed up. It is my kingdom first. I was reading this week about the the Boxer Rebellion that took place in China around 1900. It was an uprising in the country against Western foreigners living in the land. I was reading in particular of the, the toll that what happened took place on Protestant missions. And in, in particular, the, the China Inland Mission that had been started by Hudson Taylor a few decades before. The reading of the stories of missionaries and, and local Chinese Christians being martyred for their faith, how they were killed in, in sometimes horrific and terrible ways. For three decades, China Inland Mission had rejoiced in the fact that they had not had a single martyr, not one life lost due to the work in the land. And then in a few short years, they lost 58 missionaries, 21 children. But you read their prayers in the midst of that persecution. Save these people. Send more missionaries, God. I read of one woman who was dying while trying to escape from persecution. And she said to her husband, I wish I could have lived. I wish I could have gone back there to tell more people about Jesus. Save these people. God, send more missionaries. And you look at China today and you see how that prayer has been answered. Now is not the time for us to back down. Now is the time for us to seek first the kingdom of God, to pour our thinking and our energy and our resources and our hearts into mission. Are we going to get lost 
and our own needs, HBC? Or is our prayer, God, even now and especially now, use COVID to shake up our lives, to shake up our thinking, to reorient our priorities and make us, because of this, a beacon on a hill for your glory for years to come. Save these people, Father. Two times, Haggai invites them to reflect on the way that they are living, to think deeply about the spiritual state of their hearts. He says in verse five, now therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And in verse seven, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Joyce Baldwin in her commentary um, insightfully says this, reflection on events in the light of God's word is indispensable if God's people are to know the meaning of his providential ordering of their everyday affairs, bringing what's happening, happening around us to the light of scripture, bringing what's happening in our own lives to the light of scripture. You know what so often sadly is the case amongst the people of God? There's a, an unwillingness, a reluctance to hold up our lives and our lifestyles to the light of Scripture, to its exposing light. He says to them, are you prepared to consider your ways, to look back and reflect on how you're living and to look forward into what might need to change? Now, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy for us. It's easier to live in, in cruise control, free from confrontation and, and introspection free from the searching light of the Holy Spirit. It is difficult to lay our hearts bare before Scripture and to ask God to look into our lives. It's difficult to open our, ourselves up to the Holy Spirit with a posture of repentance. And it's silly. We're silly. It's like living with a, a growing tumor and refusing to go to the doctor because you fear the surgeon's scalpel. Living saying, I just, I don't want to know. Is that how you live spiritually? I don't want to know. Haggai directs their attention to the futility of their current pursuits in verse six. He says to them, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. That reference to a bag with holes seems to imply that inflation was particularly high, that what they spent their money on didn't go very far. There was struggle. But I think this verse introduces something else. Verse 6 is not really calling them to reflect just on why they're under hardship, but also their dissatisfaction. Alec Mocha in his commentary says this. He said, they had seed to sow, food to eat, wine to drink, clothes to wear, gainful employment, but no true satisfaction. Their problem was not lack of goods, but of good. This was the problem. They had goods, but the good life eluded them. They were not hungry, but neither were they satisfied. They were dressed, but they were not comfortable. They were investing much, but with a bad return on their investments. But this is exactly how God was speaking to them 
Verses 9 to 11 are going to make this even more clear. God in His grace is leading them to a place where they are able to see things with better spiritual clarity. Through hardship, He was shaking up their value system. It is God's grace that causes dissatisfaction in our lives and the things of the world. Paul Washer, in true Paul Washer fashion, once said, if you eat as a believer and you're not satisfied, and if you buy as a believer and you're not satisfied, if you're not satisfied by the entertainment of the world, you need to get down on your knees and praise God because that in itself is the evidence you're a believer. The most frightening thing is when you can give yourself to this world and be satisfied in it. Um, may we pray more in this time, God, let me not be satisfied with anything less than you. And Haggai then reminds them of what should be their greatest and their highest treasure in verse eight. He says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You may have heard the, the story of the church member who approached his pastor one day after church service and said, Pastor, I didn't really enjoy the worship today. To which the pastor replied, that's fine, we weren't worshiping you. When our priorities get mixed up, we lose sight of what really matters and we lose sight of what ought to drive us. And it shows how we live in relation to the church and even in relation to God. Treating God sometimes as a means to an end. By relegating the building of the temple to when things get easier and when we have our lives in order, they had lost track of their treasure. If they had been seeing clearly, the temple in ruins would have been a consuming problem. Remember again that the temple was the place of God's glory. It was the place of His sacrifice. It was where God's glory was meant to be manifest among the people. It was God's way of saying, I am here with you. It was a place where his sacrifice of atonement for sins was accepted. With the temple lying derelict in their midst, they shouldn't have had any peace or any confidence. Their thought should have been, is God with us? Are we still in our sin? In fact, when he says, go and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, the language employed there we see throughout the Old Testament in reference to the sacrifices bringing a pleasing aroma to God. When they are given from a heart that flows from yearning for God's glory and a yearning to be close to God, that's what was lacking in the people of God. What is the purpose of our worship? This verse tells us the purpose of worship is the pleasure of God. Do we benefit from it? Absolutely we do. We benefit and we receive joy and peace and comfort from the presence of God, but we cannot in this time forget that we exist to worship Him. We exist for His pleasure. And He will not be a means to an end. He is the end. He is the goal. That's what he's saying when he says that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. He's saying I am the center. I am the purpose of your life. 
I'm the highest and greatest end. He is the supreme end of all things. In fact, the word for glory, I think I've said it before, if taken literally means weighty, it means heavy. So to glorify God is the essence of worship. It is to ascribe to Him the place of first importance in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, in our doing, in our going. Worship is a matter of ascribed value. We all pursue what we value most. And if you most value in your life entertainment and comfort, money, or perhaps the approval of men, it will reveal itself in the way that you live. If you value God, it will be evident in the way that you live and the weight that you place upon His pleasure, what He desires. All of our lives preach a sermon. We preach a sermon of what is most valuable. Does your life preach the sermon of the supremacy of Christ? If the, place of, if the temple was the place of God's glory and the place of His sacrifice in the Old Testament, for them worship meant prioritizing the building of His house over their own. For us, worship is prioritizing His kingdom above our own. Christ is the locus of God's glory and His sacrifice. Christ is God with us. He mediates God to us. He reconciles us to God. And so worship, pandemic or no, is saying, Christ is my Lord. He is supreme. What does it mean today to prioritize His kingdom in everything I do? In the way that I speak to people, in my family, in my church, in my co-workers, in the way I face temptation because my heart has found a greater treasure and trial because Christ is worth my worship even then and in pleasure because Christ is reigning over the desires of my heart. Mark Deva asks an insightful question in his his um, section on Haggai in the, in the book, The Message of the Old Testament. He says, what would your life look like if you got what you really wanted? Do you have a picture of that in your mind? Now ask yourself, would God be there? Is he at the center of your desires or is he repeatedly neglected by the true center of your heart's desires? The battle of our lives is to fight and to pray that our eyes would be more open, that our hearts would be more open to the glory and the supreme weight and worthiness of Jesus Christ. You, you may have heard the story of the thief who broke into a store one night, not to steal anything, but just to cause chaos, to switch the price tags of all the items in the store. And chaos reigned in the store the next morning what cost 3,000 rand the night before only cost 30 rand the next morning. And what cost 50 rand the night before now cost 5,000 rand. That chaos in the store is like the turmoil that many, many people are going to face the day that they stand before Jesus and they realize that what, that which was so deeply cherished in their hearts is valueless, meaningless, and lost. But oh, on that day, for those who spent themselves for a kingdom invisible, where growth and where return seem so slow, 
so intangible, only to realize the return is a hundredfold more than they could ever have imagined. In verse 9, Haggai says, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Gold and silver and the harvest belong to the Lord. It is his to give and his to withhold. And Haggai is certain that their economic state is due to the fact that they're neglecting the temple. Verse 10 and 11, he says, Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine, the oil on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. There is a theme in the minor prophets. The effect of sin, the effect of their failure to obey on their material prosperity. Amos 4 Hosea 4, Micah 6, all speak of the same thing. In the language that Haggai is employing in verses 10 and 11, he takes right out of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 11, verse 13 to 17. <coughs> Deuteronomy 28 to 30 expand on this idea. They sketch the idea of blessing and cursing under covenant. Covenant blessing and cursing. In Deuteronomy, it says how as they were to enter the land of Canaan, God promised that their physical prosperity would be linked to their obedience. And so now we need to think carefully about what Haggai is saying here. Because prosperity theology would take what he's saying and twist this into a kind of quid pro quo with God. If you obey if you give generously to the work of the church, God will bless your health and your wealth and you will be prosperous. So what is the difference between what Haggai is saying and between Haggai and a, a TV preacher? And I, I realize the irony of that as you watch me from your TVs. There's an important difference between this and the prosperity gospel. And it's this. Haggai doesn't dangle for them the same carrot that the prosperity preachers do. He doesn't say to them, you're experiencing cursing now and if you change your ways, the reason that you change your ways is because then God will have to bless you. The reason Haggai gives is actually not about material prosperity at all. Yes, it's the reason they are struggling. But what does he say? What is the reason for them to build the house of the Lord? God says that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified in it. And for those who love God, this is the greatest motivator of all. After they obey, we're going to see from next work, God says to them, I am with you. That is the treasure that we seek. There is a general truth. There is a general truth that obedience to the Lord leads to blessing. For example, if you... Put God first in your marriage is a good chance you're going to have a good and happy marriage. If you are faithful with a little, he will entrust you with more. There's even a promise in Scripture to children today. If you honor your fathers and mothers, do so that you may live long in the land. But we know the truth that that is not always the case. Martyrs die with the certainty that material blessing cannot compare 
to seeing the face of the one of whom I, was, I refused to be ashamed. The stories of Job and Paul, Bible filled with examples of the, the danger of obedience. That sometimes when you obey, it leads not to blessing. It leads to trouble in the world. And we must avoid the bad theology of Job's friends who said, you're suffering, Job, it must be because you sinned. But there is a general truth that God's commands are not only for our eternal good, but for our temporal good as well. But in Haggai, that is not the carrot. The carrot is this, I am with you. We can appreciate the gift, but be saying all the, all the while, I want the giver. Give me the giver. And it is only the heart that delights in the pleasure of God, that delights in the presence of God. So why? Why did God blow away their material prosperity? I don't think the main point here in Haggai is just that if we fail to render unto God what he deserves, that he'll take it away. That's not the main end. Rather, I believe what we're seeing here in this book, in God's people having money bags with holes in them and God decreeing famine, what we see here is a God of love. This is the God who pursues the hearts of his people. His hand to withhold is also the hand of mercy. Mark Dever said, they had neglected God and so what happened? They found the very sources of their life falling away. Charles Spurgeon said, if men are selfish and keep their wealth to themselves and rob God of his portion, they shall not prosper, or if they do, no blessing shall come with it. In other words, some material prosperity is not due to the blessing of God. See, when we turn to idols to satisfy us and to save us, it is only the grace of God that tears away from us the illusion of those idols' trustworthiness. As we saw recently, remember in Isaiah 55? Why do you spend your money on that which does not satisfy? It is the grace of God that causes our hearts not to be satisfied in those things. And it is the grace of God that sometimes takes away those things that keep us from living for his glory. Kim Riddlebarger said on this verse, it is a matter of profound but often overlooked significance that when Yahweh says, stop raining, it stops raining. And what is profoundly alarming in our lives is how often we turn to those things, to the neglect of God, to the neglect of his kingdom. We turn to created things to give our lives meaning. There is great gain to be found in learning to live in this way. God, I want to know you more. I want to do your will. I want to be kept from sin. And I will leave the care of my life. I will leave my interests in your hands because you are able to take care of me better than I could ever take care of myself. God, when you say rain, it rains. When you say stop raining, it stops raining. And when God's house comes first in your life and his interest is your interest, your interest is his pleasure and his glory, you can live with great comfort knowing that no matter what happens, it'll happen for your ultimate good. 
and the desire of your heart cannot be frustrated and it cannot be harmed. Finally, church, with the last two minutes I have, I just wanna close by encouraging you. I wanna say one more thing about blessing. Psalm 67, which I wanna read a part of it to you, is a prayer that was totally antithetical to the heart of the people of, of God in Haggai's day, the heart of those who had left the house of the Lord in ruins. But it is also a prayer that seems contradictory to what we ought to be praying for. When you read Psalm 67, you, you, you ask the question, can I, can I ask like this? Can I speak like this? Look at verse one of Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. And verse six, the earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. Can we pray like that? Psalm 67 is absolutely appropriate for the church to pray because of the context. The middle verses, look at verse, verses two to four. From verse one he says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. There's a request for blessing that isn't just a seeking for accumulation in order to build our own kingdoms. There's a request for the Lord to bless us in order for our, our capacity to do ministry our capacity to glorify the Lord might expand. We pray God bless us that we may see more sinners redeemed and saved through our ministry. God bless us that your kingdom may, be, may expand from here, that you may be glorified. And I wanted to close with this encouragement. Haggai is a, a very heavy book. There's a, a very heavy message in this book, and I, I don't want you to get the sense that it's, it's doom and gloom for us as a church. I want you to know that as, as elders, we are grateful for the work of the Spirit, even in this last year among us. You were generous in your giving. We went away on an elders retreat, and, and Charles, our, our elder over finances, gave us a financial report, and I, I wanted to weep. 33% of our income went out immediately to missions-related things. As a church, we were able to give more to our missionaries so that they wouldn't feel the effect of a weakening rand. We had ministries like the COVID Relief Fund and our Widows Fund, which is flourishing. And so we, we are grateful as well. We are actually in a place quite unique under under the circumstances. We're in a place where we want to expand and we're ready to expand, increase our capacity for ministry. And you're gonna hear more about this in the weeks to come. But our hearts have to start in this place, in Psalm 67. God, not for our glory and not for our comfort, but for your praise and the glory of your name. We want more people to hear the name of Jesus. We want to see more people worshiping God rightly. Let's pray. Holy Father, we...
come before you and we ask that, that what you have done in our hearts this morning would not be snatched away by the evil one, that we would not turn quickly from this to our own interests and prioritize our own kingdoms and build only for those things. May we not panel our own houses and leave your house to itself. Oh God, I pray that you would convict our hearts this morning. Each one of us, help us to know where in our own lives changes need to be made. Commitment needs to be checked. Oh God, we pray that you would do this work and we thank you for the blessing of your word, for the blessing of this minor prophet with a major message for us today. Amen.